Please grab a seat. Uh, we're looking at 2 Samuel. Uh, we've, got first, no, we've got eight chapters of 2 Samuel tonight. Uh, I did think about just reading all eight chapters. It took me an hour and five minutes. That's the whole service. But um, I thought there's another way of teaching it. If you've just joined us, you're new tonight, uh, the story so far is that you've got a king called David. Uh, he is God's chosen king. And God has worked wonders to establish David as his king over all of Israel. And yet, we saw in chapters 11 and 12 last week, that even a man who is a man after God's own heart, can fall so quickly and stoop so low, as he sleeps with Bathsheba and then murders a man called Uriah. And we saw the incredible forgiveness in the words, the Lord has forgiven and taken away your sins. That's where we're up to. We've got eight chapters to go tonight, so I thought I'd tell the story as a soap opera. And the soap, it's a bit like a soap opera, it's a bit like Home and Away, this story. Uh, I've called the soap opera Sex, Lies and Conspiracies. And I'm going to be the lead actor. My name is Absalom. You can call me Prince Absalom because uh, David is my father, David the King is my father. Uh, And I've got uh, a sister. Uh, Her name is Tamar. She is really beautiful. Stunningly beautiful. I've got a half-brother. His name is Amnon. I want to tell you about a a really ugly thing that happened. Uh, Amnon fell in love. And he fell in love with his sister, Tamar. He was so in love that he was literally lovesick. And he called his mate, uh, Jonadab, and he said, I want to sleep with her. And they devised this plan where Amnon would pretend to be sick and Tamar would play his nurse and his cook. And so Tamar is there kneading the bread and Amnon's up in his bedroom and he's fantasising about his sister. And Amnon gets rid of everyone from the palace. And in walks Tamar and she's got this food and she brings the food to Amnon and Amnon grabs her. And Amnon says, sleep with me. No, she pleads. (laughs) No, that is so wrong. I'm your sister. Please, no. But Amnon is ruled by his pants rather than his brain and he grabs her. And he forces her and he rapes her. And the shocking thing was that that depth of feeling, that so-called love, that so-called lust, it turns to hatred. And he says to Tamar, get out! And she pleads with him again. She says, please no. You've done one bad thing. Please don't throw me into the gutter. But he won't listen. And he chucks her out into the gutter. And that's where I saw her. As she swapped her, her, her royal robes for, for sackcloth and ashes and she's weeping and she's wailing and something inside me went Amnon has raped her and so I asked her she said yes and I just hold her and I took her into the palace I took her to dad to David and he was angry his own daughter had been raped But you know, he did nothing about it. I mean, 
part of me thought, you know, he's just slept with another woman's, another man's wife, and his heart had been hardened, and he was angry, but he did nothing about it. I was fuming. And for two long years, I planned how I would get revenge on Amnon. One day, I, I called all the king's sons up, up to the mountain where the sheep shearers were, and I said to them, we're going to ply Amnon with wine, we're going to get him drunk. And we did. And whilst he was drunk, I got my men and we, we killed him and it felt good. That was revenge. And then I fled. Such a place called Geshur and I hid in hiding. About three years later, a really weird thing happened. There was this woman, a woman from Tekoa, and she went to my dad, the king, and she told him this story. She told him how she had two sons and one day these two sons were fighting and they were, they were brawling and, and one son killed the other son. And the whole of the village wanted revenge and they wanted to kill the murderer. And so the woman came to King David and she pleaded with him. She said, please king, please protect my son. I know he's a murderer, but please protect him. And David said these weird words. He said, not one hair on his head will be touched. I'll protect him. And the woman turns to David and she says, You hypocrite. You hypocrite. Because you had two sons, David. You had Amnon and you had me, Absalom. And yes, Absalom's a murderer, but, but you just cast him off. You hypocrite. And that's when he welcomed me back. And so I was brought back to Jerusalem. I was coming home. Can you imagine walking home from back into your hometown after three years away and you, you spot the, the palace where you grew up and, and then an odd thing happened because... They didn't take me into the palace. They put me in some backyard town and I wasn't allowed to see my dad, the king. For two long years I didn't see dad, the king. And I got completely fed up and I said to, to Joab, why have you brought me back from Geshur just to be stuck here? Look, take me to the king. If I've done wrong, then punish me. But if I've done right, then let me live with him. And so I went an audience with the king. Can you imagine walking into the palace after five years of not seeing your dad? And my heart was beating and I walked into the throne room and I knelt before him and King David kissed me. Welcome home, my son. But he didn't know me, really. You see, I wanted his kingdom. I wanted that throne. I wanted him dead. I was pretty good at working a crowd. I'd won Mr. Israel. I was the most handsome man in the whole of Israel. I was so photogenic. And, you know, the crowds would come to the palace and they'd bring their cases of justice. And I'd, I'd get there early and I'd meet them outside the palace. And I'd listen to their stories and I'd say to them, you deserve justice. And I'd, I'd mastered the, the sympathy look, you know. Oh, that's so hard. And I'd mastered the, the shock. Oh, really? And I, I'd mastered the empathy and I said, that is so wrong. And I, I'd put my arm around him and I'd say, you know, if I were king, if I were king, I'd look after you. But David... You're just a number on a list for him. 
if I was king then you know your life would be so much better and they'd say oh thank you Prince Absalom and I'd say no no call me Abs you know the, the common touch call me Kevin and I'd roll up my sleeves and I'd say I'm your buddy I'm your pal and the test loved that and I stole the hearts of Israel and they wanted me to be king and my plan was working and I wanted my dad dead even his best counsellor Ahithophel he came onto my team and I gathered all these people around me and the people went to David and they said the people want Absalom to be king they wanted me king and dad David he fled he ran off I had a plan I had a great plan but I, I consulted Ahithophel who was David's counsellor and he told me some fantastic advice I loved it he said to me I want you to sleep with all the wives of David I want you to sleep with your dad's wives don't do it in, in private do it in public so everyone will see you and I thought not just Mr Israel Mr Virility as well I'm going to be fabulous and I did it because I was saying that these wives now belong to me and I was going to be king and then Ahithophel said to me he said strike now whilst David is weak strike now get your 220,000 men and, and pursue David uh, and just kill David just kill David don't kill the rest of the army because those rest of the army can be on your team after that but there's another man called Hushai who was a bit of an odd guy and for some bizarre reason I chose to ask him as well and he said to me oh, don't listen to Ahithophel listen to me and his plan was really quite good because it made me look really good he said take your time gather your army and then, then you can process at the front of your army you can ride right at the front just process in proud prompt ceremony and everyone will love you uh, Ab Absalom and you'll think that you're the hero and I quite like that because that massaged my own ego and so I ignored Ahithophel and I listened to Hushai how foolish was I because David obviously had spies he was ready, he was waiting and so when we turned up on one day 20,000 of my men were killed as for me you're going to laugh at this but I was riding my donkey, my mule and we were riding in a low hanging branch and I got my head stuck in the branch of the tree and the donkey kept on running and I was just hanging there like this and one of David's men came and I thought they were going to kill me but they didn't because David he was always a softie David said don't harm Absalom my son but then Joab came and he got three javelins one, two, three like darts in my heart straight through me but I didn't die I just hung there with javelins through me and then they came and took me down and they beat me to death and they chucked me in a grave and they put stones over it and you know what David did? he wept David wept and I thought you idiot I hated you 
I wanted to kill you. I wanted to take your crown and you're weeping over me. And then God brought David back into Jerusalem as king. Just as he promised. That's the story. And you're probably asking, what is all that about? I've just summarised eight chapters of the Bible. I want to encourage you to go away and read it. It's a fabulous story. There's deceit, there's murder, there's lies, there's rape, there's abuse, there's claiming the kingdom. It's a great read, but what's it got to do with you and me? I want to look at three consequences, three applications with you. first one is this. That sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. Because the backdrop to these eight chapters are a promise that God made to David in chapter 12. It's on the screen. When he'd come to God and confessed his sin with Bathsheba, this is what God said. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, excuse me, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord said, out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret but I will do it in broad daylight before Israel. That's the backdrop. And you see that promise being fulfilled in these eight chapters. David slept with Bathsheba, David killed Uriah and now he's living under the consequences of his sin. See, yes, there's forgiveness. Chapter 12, when David confesses, I've done the wrong thing, I've sinned. And he hears the wonderful words, excuse me, the Lord has taken away your sin. He hears this amazing word, the Lord has taken away your sin. He is forgiven, he is forgiven. And yet there are still consequences. It's like, you know, the, the Christian who comes to Christ and acknowledges that, that they've sinned with, with a gambling addiction. And yes, they're forgiven, but they're still living with the consequences, you know, of debt and of poverty and of mistrust. It's like the, the Christian who, who comes to God and says, you know, I, I've, I've failed you, God, I, I've messed up sexually, I've been sexually immoral. Yes, they're forgiven, they're completely forgiven in Christ, but we still live with consequences. And that's what this story is all about. The impact, the consequences of sin. So David's first son died. David's son Absalom, he committed rape and then he was murdered. David's other son, that's Amnon, sorry, David's other son Absalom, uh, he, he conspired against David, he slept with David's wives in broad daylight and then he tried to steal the throne. They're pretty severe consequences for David. And we're supposed to read these chapters and go, what has happened to the man after God's own heart? The answer? He's living with the consequences of his sin. I did some research on, on, on um, wound healing. It's like when you, you wound your skin. Uh, and you might have a wound and it might heal almost perfectly and there's no outward scar, there's no scar on the epidermis. But no matter what the, the outward, thing, outward things look like, underneath, your tissue underneath is always damaged, is always different. That's a bit like sin. Outwardly you're cleansed, inwardly you are forgiven, and yet there's always consequences. 
David in this story is, is a shocking father. His own daughter is raped, he doesn't, there's nothing about it. He lets one son murder another. He listens to worldly wisdom. He doesn't depend on God anymore. He doesn't inquire on God. It's kind of like he lives in fear of God now. That's a consequence of sin. And as we read these chapters, we're supposed to say, like father, like son. Now what did David do? David had lust, sex, hatred, deceit and murder. What did his sons do? Lust, rape, hatred, deceit and murder. And we shouldn't be shocked because that's the way sins work. We are impacted by other people's sins. We're impacted by the sins of our parents, good and bad. It's not just psychology that says that, it's the Bible that says that. It's the same with our attitude towards sin. I was, I was shocked a few weeks back on the news where it was talking about the, the marriage between Portia de Rosso and Ellen DeGeneres. And I'm watching this news item thinking we are celebrating a lesbian marriage and no one seems to bat an eyelid. And you know, 40 years ago, people would have stood up and said, that is wrong. Marriage is for one man and for one woman. Uh, 10 years ago, we would have said, oh, look, we tolerate it, but I don't particularly like it. And today we just celebrate it. That's the consequences of sin. We become more and more and more immune to what is right and more and more exposed to sin in the church and in the world. And I'm saying this tonight, my friends, because you might be here as a Christian who's put your trust in Christ and let me say you are completely and totally forgiven but we've still got to grapple with the consequences. That might mean doing some hard work, seeking some help, seeking some counselling, praying to God to change you and to forgive you for all these other things. But it also means that, that you and I can never take forgiveness cheaply. Please don't think that it doesn't matter what you do. You can sin because you can just go to God and ask for forgiveness. Yes, you can, but you live with the consequences. That's one thing from this story. Secondly, there will always be opposition to God's king. There will always be opposition to God's king. God made another promise back in chapter 7. He says, your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. And we read this story, we're thinking, well, David is not going to be the perfect king. David is not going to be the one who will rule with perfect justice. And we're waiting, we're waiting, and then King Jesus steps into the world, doesn't he? And let me ask you, when the perfect king did step into the world? Did the whole world celebrate and embrace him? Did people run to him and say, wow, we've been waiting for you? No, John chapter 1, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. And the Pharisees, throughout the Gospels, did what? They looked for a way to kill him. And what did the crowd shout to Jesus? The crowd shouted, crucify him. There's always opposition to God's king. Same with Paul, when he preached Jesus, uh, he was chucked into jail, he was put in stocks, he was spat on, he was mocked. Uh, and to Timothy we heard that everyone had deserted him. There's always a way when you and I preach Jesus, when you and I talk about God's King Jesus, people will not like it. And we're to expect the opposition. And I think that's another thing we learn from 2 Samuel 13-20. to Because some of the opposition to David was blatant. And some were so much, so much more subtle. So we've got Shimei. Just look at chapter 16, verse 5. Shimei is one of Saul's men. And it's blatant opposition. 
page 226, 16 verse 5. As the King David approached Bahurim, a man came from the same clan as Saul's family. He came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gerah. And he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops of the special guards were on David's right and left. And he cursed. Shimei said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed over the kingdom over to your son, Absalom. You've come to ruin because you're a man of blood. I don't think Shimei likes David, does he? It's pretty blatant opposition. It's physical, it's verbal abuse. I hate you, King David. And you know, there are people in our world who do that with Jesus. There are people who are blatantly opposed and they pelt him with abuse. And to be honest, my friends, I sometimes find that easy to deal with. At least you know where they stand. The hard thing is when the, when the opposition is more subtle. So look at Zeba. Just cast your eyes up to verse 1. We met Zeba before. He's the, the master of um, Mephibosheth, the steward of Mephibosheth. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Zeba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. And he looks apart. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread and a hundred cakes of raisins, a hundred cakes of figs and a skin of wine. And David the king asked Zeba, Why have you bought these? And Zeba answered, Oh, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on and the bread and the fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who have become exhausted in the desert. And you're sitting there thinking, He's such a nice guy. He's looking after the king and he's following the king. And then the king says in verse 3, Where's your master's grandson? Where's Mephibosheth? Where's the cripple that I carried to the table? And Ziba said, Oh, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. And you're probably sitting there thinking, Mephibosheth is a nasty piece of work after all David did for him. And Ziba is such a nice guy. One thing I've learned in ministry is there's two sides to every story. And if you knew the full story, you can read about it in chapter 19. Ziba is lying through his teeth. Mephibosheth wanted to come, but Ziba left him there. Why? Because he wanted to play the happy follower of David. But it's all show. He's just manipulating to get what he wants. And that is the same with some people with Jesus, some people I meet, all show, all manipulation, they look the part, they make the promises, so long as they benefit. But deep down it's all lies, it's all facades. And that might be you here tonight. Manipulating God's king for what you can get out of it. And then there's Ahithophel who is the betrayer. He's kind of like the, the Old Testament version of Judas Iscariot. The traitor. Look at chapter 16, verse 23. In those days, the advice of Ahithophel was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Except, 17, verse 1, 
Ahithophel said to Absalom, I, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David and I would kill him. And you're supposed to read this and go, this is David's right-hand man, the king's right-hand man and suddenly he swapped teams completely. Uh, he's become the betrayer, he wants the king dead. And do you know how Ahithophel ends his life? Ahithophel hangs himself, just like Judas did. Because he's betrayed God's king. And I have to say, I, I do see that every day as well with Jesus. Who are the people who are most vocal in their opposition to Jesus and the church? Who are the people who write all the articles in the City Morning Herald against the church? They're often people who have been in the church and would once claim to be Christians, but they've just switched teams. The betrayer, the traitors. And then there's Absalom. I call him the worm. Because he's part of the family, he looks good, he uses the charm, he appears to be on the king's sides, he knows how to work a crowd. Chapter 15 verse 6 says that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole it with his, his flattery. It was all about his personal gain, all about his popularity, getting what he wanted. He had no qualms against fighting against God's anointed one. And I think that's the most common response today. The worms who, who look the part, but it's all about self, getting what they want. They know how to work a crowd. They know the worst to say, the look, the evangelical look, the expression when they're singing, the prayers to pray. It's all about self. All glory to me, but not King Jesus. I'll build my church and my kingdom and people will worship me and they'll podcast my sermons and buy my books and they'll work the crowd and I'll tell them I love them but it's all about me. All style and no substance. And it's easy to be sucked in by that. It really scares me, you know. Some church leaders today they can say the right things they can wear the right clothes they can write the books and people will listen and people will flock but they're not leading people to Jesus they're leading people away from him and to themselves be warned just be warned until the Lord Jesus returns there will always be opposition and there will always be people as Paul said who will tell people what their itching ears want to hear just be discerning who you listen to and who you follow and what you read. Finally, God will establish his king. God will establish his king. Do you ever ask yourself, do you ever wake up in the morning and go, is this true? <laughs> Admit it, I do. You know? I wake up and I go, have I believed a lie? I mean, why doesn't Jesus come back? And why is this world so messed up? And why is the church seemingly falling into this heap? And what are you doing, God? And why is my life so hard if you've made all these promises to me? And I question, and I need to hear to Samuel. Because it reminds me that God did establish his king. And God did keep his promises. And God will always keep his promises. No matter how I feel... And no matter how uh, the world looks or circumstances look, uh, 
it's easy to look at our world and think, you know, Islam is taking over, or humanism is taking over, or atheism is taking over, and we need to know that Jesus is king, and God will establish his king. And that's the comfort of these chapters, that, that David is God's king, and God's plans will not be thwarted, and David will not be defeated, even by his own son. And the bizarre thing is that, that God uses really bizarre people to show that he's in control. He uses a guy called Ittai. I think you've got it on your screen. Look what, he, look, look what Ittai does. Ittai is... He's the Gittite and he says... The king said to Ittai, Why should you come along with us? Go back. Stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner in exile. You came only yesterday. And today, shall I make you wander about with us when you, I don't know where I'm going? Go back. Take your countrymen. But Ittai replied, verse 21, this is astonishing. As surely as the, the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. It's kind of like this island of fidelity in this sea of treachery. And the irony is that the man who has lived with the King, lived with his dad all his life, turns out to be the one who opposes him. And this simple man called Ittai, who's been with him for one day, he's more faithful. It reminds me of you know, the, the widow who gave Jesus everything she had when those who should have known better wanted to crucify him. It reminds me of the prostitute who stood by Jesus when everyone else wanted to crucify him. It reminds me of Onesiphorus who stood by Paul when everyone else deserted him. God will often put alongside us uh, the, the, the faithful one who will say, no, no, just, just trust. God is in control. God's king will be established. It might be Nittai. It might be a Hushai. He's an archite. David prayed that, that Ahithophel, his traitor, would speak foolish words to Absalom. And what does the response get? 15 verse 31. David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Now how did God answer that prayer? He sent an odd man called Hushai. And you're thinking, what are you doing, God? What God is doing is that he's bringing his plan in his timing through his people. Because Hushai gives the, the wonky advice that, that Absalom listens to. And David's life is spared. And then you've got David. Just look at chapter 17, verse 14. It's extraordinary. The last bit. The advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. The Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice. Do you see how God is always in control? God is always manipulating things and controlling things so that his plans and his purposes comes about because his king will be established and his king will survive. And when you read the rest of these chapters you've got the most bizarre people who support the king. You've got a pagan. You've got a, a former servant of the enemy. You've got an 80-year-old frail man all serving the king. Why am I telling you this? Because the times when you are asking, is God keeping his promise? Is Jesus really king? Will Jesus come back? Am I an idiot? Am I a fool? When everything around you looks very different, you've got to trust. You've got to be confident that God is faithful and God is in control. 
Can you imagine being a disciple of Jesus? As you'd live with Jesus, you'd listen to Jesus, you followed Jesus, and then suddenly he walks up a hill and he's crucified. And you're there going, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot. And God's saying, you're not an idiot. It was my plan to crucify him. And maybe you're saying tonight, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot. The world is saying, Jesus is wrong. And, And God's saying, no, you're not an idiot. Trust me, trust me, trust me. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. My king will be established. You see, you can, you can look at the world, you can look at the church, and you can go, it's all crumbling. And you can pray. And God will answer that prayer the way that he wants to answer that prayer. And sometimes he'll bring alongside you an Itai or a Hushai who will look very odd, but that would be God's plan of comforting you and getting you back, back on track. And sometimes he'll just rebuke you and he'll say, Listen, I am God and I will establish my king. See, our lives can be a bit like a soap opera. Sex, lies and conspiracies. And it's tempting to listen to the soap operas. And you've got to lift your eyes above the soap operas to a good God who is all-powerful and all-conquering. Jesus is king. Jesus did die. Jesus did rise, Jesus did ascend and Jesus is coming back and the question is will you believe that will you trust that or will you keep on living your life as a soap opera and ignoring Jesus as your king let me pray Father you You've warned us that in these last days uh, things will go from bad to worse. Uh, We're told that things will get better but Lord you've told us that they won't and help us to be realistic about that. Uh, Lord you've told us that your your son will return and help us please to to trust that. Father when we're surrounded by men and women who are trying to take us away from Christ when we're fed lies, when we're fed untruths, when we are deceived, when we watch people turn away from Christ. Lord, please help us trust you and have our our feet firmly on the rock that is Christ. Lord, we love you and we, we pray that you would help us to be men and women who are so secure and confident in your faithfulness and your unchanging character and your goodness And most of all, your King, your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask that for Jesus' sake.